You may have heard an old sermon illustration about a woman who was on a large boat for the first time. And as the boat went out into choppy waters, she began to turn kind of green and she began to get very frightened, very, very scared. And she was holding on to the railing, looking at the waves going up and down and praying and praying and thinking, oh my goodness, we are in great trouble. We are going to go down. And then she, she said, I gotta get out of here. I gotta, I gotta get inside the boat. And as she went into the boat and was walking down a narrow passage, she saw the captain. And she ran up to him and grabbed his sleeve and said, tell me, captain. Is there any hope? And he, being a pious man, said, well, our only hope is in the Lord. And she turned incredibly pale and said, oh my, is it as bad as all that? See, I didn't know if people would laugh or not because I don't know if that's a joke or not or if it's kind of an indictment on how we often think. That if our hope is in God, if the only thing we can count on is God and his hand, and his coming to our rescue, or his sustaining us, or his empowering us, it must be bad. That is the worst and most desperate of situations. Whereas, believers ought to think of this as the constant reality of our lives. Our only hope is in the Lord. You could be walking down the sidewalk here on the most beautiful sunny day in the world, birds chirping, Kids holding balloons, walking by, everyone laughing and smiling. And if someone said, is there any hope? You should reply, our only hope is in the Lord. It's not as bad as all that. It's as good as all that. And we see that here in Ezra chapter 8, I believe. We see the tendency to look to God when things are bad. And then the reminder, the reminder to self that comes throughout the Psalms especially, that this is what we must do with our lives all the time. That turning to God just when things all seem hopeless and all seems lost is a pagan way of thinking. So we're here with these uh, Israelites, these, these men of Judah and Benjamin and the Levites and, and some other tribes. They're gathered together. They're, there's about five or 6,000 of them. They're going to be heading from Persia where they're in exile back to Jerusalem. Another trip, another group, another return. God is making good on his promises. And we've seen that they've done all the physical preparations that they can do. They've gathered together all they need. They've got the permission of the king and his blessing. They've got some funding from him. They have some gold and silver. They've got vessels. They've got all the people lined up. They go and they camp at the shore of the river Ahava or the Ahava Canal, I think the King James says. And there they kind of get organized and they recognized last week our text had them seeing, wait a minute, there's no Levites here. We need Levites. So they went out and they got the people they needed and they said, okay, we are good to go. Let's set out. But they don't set out right away. What we see happening here, now that they've made all the earthly, all the physical preparations, is that they are going to make spiritual preparation. They're not just going to go, okay, we're ready to go, let's go. Have you ever been with other Christians? You sit down to dinner and someone starts eating and someone says, oh, I'm sorry, are we going to pray? Oh, I love those moments. It's, if I'm not the guy who started eating, it, it is, you know, th that moment of, wait a minute, we've got, we've got to pray here. Well, they are not going to have that moment. They are going to take the time to prepare for this great and, frankly, dangerous journey. And oddly, even though we would know in our minds that this is at least as important as making all the physical and logistical preparations, even for Christians, this is probably a rare occurrence to give equal time to spiritual 
preparation. I think often what we do is at the beginning of some kind of endeavor or project or something, we might offer up a very broad, very perfunctory, Lord, please bless all that we're about to do, amen. And then we say, I'll see you at the finish line, God, when we thank you that everything went well. And that's sort of the extent of our looking to him or his involvement in what we do. Never really seeking his leading, his direction, his protection, his protection, which is greatly needed here in the midst of carrying out these things that we do, whether it's for him or for us or our family or what. And this is a wonderful text to point us to this reality. In fact, this verse, this first verse of our text, 821, Ezra 821 was the text that John Robinson, and that was the pastor of the church that chartered the Mayflower to come to America. John Robinson preached one last sermon to his flock before they got on that boat and set sail. And it was on that verse saying we need to to prepare for an arduous journey to look to God to protect us and guide us and give us safe passage. Now, I have three points this morning in classic Baptist pastor fashion. I wanted them to be alliterated. The best alliterating, of course, means starting all with the same letter, like, you know, those old school preachers. And the best way to alliterate is the interactive multimedia way with P words. That way, not only do you hear the popping of the P's, you can see the words come up. And if you're in the front few rows, you can even feel it. But I can only come up with two P's, and the middle one's an E. So, so, so it's still a mnemonic device, and we're going to talk today about praying with pep. P-E-P. Pep, indeed. The first thing that we see is that when they gather together, this is preemptive prayer. Preemptive prayer, which I want you to notice is itself P-E-P. Pep. So, yeah, it works really well. I just noticed that now, actually. That wasn't intentional. But preemptive, meaning coming before, not reactive, not coming after. This, again, is an unusual thing, even among Christians. Because we know we should prioritize prayer for any endeavor, for any enterprise, for even the smallest of things. And yet, so often, our practice does not reflect that knowledge. So much of our prayer life is reactive. Something happens And if it's jarring enough, it might make me stop in my tracks and pray even in that moment. If it's sort of important or sort of difficult, I'm like, oh, I'll pray about that later. I got to remember. If it's with somebody else's life, I might say, I'll pray about that. And then there's like a 30% chance that I will. Aside, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you're in the house of God, especially, and you say, how are you? And someone tells you about a difficulty, don't say, I'll pray for you. Don't do it. When are you going to pray for them? When you're in church? You're already in church. Grab their hand, bow your head, pray right then. Maybe better yet, grab a couple other people, surround them. This is a house of prayer. It's meant to be anyway. Remember when when Jesus said this was supposed to be a house of prayer, but it wasn't? He got really angry. Let's make it a house of prayer. Don't say I'll pray, but pray. Well, we often, we have that kick it down the road, kick the can mentality. I'll pray later. I'll pray if something comes up. This is not that kind of prayer. Preemptive prayer. And then, we will often, when we pray, rarely, rarely, Lord, do I ask you for anything, but I'm in a bind. You ever notice that? That happens on TV shows all the time. Lord, I never ask you for anything, but, and it's meant to be a laugh. But I've heard people actually pray that. Lord, you know I don't ask for much. As if that speaks well for our prayer life. 
as if that's something to be proud of. It's not a mark in your favor if you don't ask God for anything. Our prayers ought to be preparatory like this one, preemptive like this one. Before anything's spinning out of control, before any gears are grinding in my plans, before my soles and my feet have touched the floorboards, I ought to be praying that God will guide me today, protect me today, protect my family, protect my, my ministries, protect my business, whatever. This is preemptive prayer. That word preemptive some years ago would have probably made people kind of buck up and go, wait a minute, what, what are we talking about? Because it was a very controversial term in recent decades. Certain wars have prompted debates about whether preemptive strikes are okay to go out before the enemy has done anything and, and to strike, or do you have to wait for the enemy to do something and then respond? And that's a very fascinating, complicated topic way over my pay grade. But I can tell you as a, a minister of the word that in your spiritual life, there's no discussion, no question involved. Preemptive war is what we're to carry out, spiritually speaking. To just go after and tear down strongholds. To, to put our, our flesh to death. You don't wait for the sin nature to come roaring up and, and gaining ground before you react no, every day, in the words of John Owen, new strikes, new blows, new injuries to the sin nature until you have it down on the ground, and then you don't stop. You keep on kicking. That is what we see in the New Testament. That is what we see modeled physically in the Old Testament, and this is true in prayer as well. You don't wait for the prayer to come to you. You go out and meet and pave the way with prayer. Specifically, what did they pray for? Verse 21, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, for our children, and for all our goods. That's a good translation. If we were to very woodenly translate this, this Hebrew phrase, derek yeshara, which means a straight path, it would say that we were praying for God to provide for us a straight road, a straight path. It's a Hebrew idiom, meaning the right way. In fact, it's the very same Hebrew phrase used in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Most of you know this one probably by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will, the King James says, direct your path. Same phrase here. He will make straight your path. This straight road doesn't mean, Lord, give us the shortest distance between the two points. So we don't waste time, you know, 40 years wandering in the wilderness again. Rather, is this a prayer? God, reveal to us the best way forward and protect us along the way. It's a prayer of preparation. It's a great way to live out that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lord, don't let me lean on my own understanding as I try and accomplish this or that. Don't let me try and, and make my own way. Rather, you lead the way and give me the discernment and the heart and the wisdom to follow. So it calls to mind for me, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a controversial verse in my circles because it's always uh, on, on all the lists of the most misused Bible verses, right? You know this one, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And of course, the beef is that there are people claiming this Bible verse as if it were a guarantee that they will prosper financially or, you know, it's pulling it out of context and that sort of thing. And the fact is, Yes, we have to be careful not to pull verses out of context. Yank them violently out of the situation in which they were delivered and then just stick them into our own hearts and lives and situations however we want. Of course, but there, of course, as there is with any text, 
a proper application of that verse to your life and mine. You just have to say, okay, how is this fulfilled in Christ? And how does that therefore apply to me in Christ? And how does this play out for the glory of Christ and his holy name in my life? The blowback against people sort of claiming this as their life verse or something, I admit I've occasionally myself even been sarcastic or snarky about it, but I think it's, it's a little bit of an overreaction. We need to be careful, yes, but all of God's word is holy and useful and God-breathed. Let's not make some of it you know, no longer applicable or make some of it no longer useful, no longer useful for teaching and rebuking and training and all the rest. Just be careful with these sort of things. But forget all that context stuff for a moment and just think about the text. I think the real problem with that verse is the way people apply it, they rewrite it. They, they, they don't think, okay, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. The way it's applied is, God says to you, I know the plans you have for yourself. And I will bless them and fulfill them and use them to prosper you in just the way you want to be prospered. That's not what happens here. The opposite happens here. Now, I want to point out something about this verse. These folks could have made it their life verse with no problem whatsoever because these are exactly the people that promise was made for. You're in exile. I know it looks like I don't have any future for you, but I do. You're out here in, in Persia, in Babylon. You're separated from the promised land, from the, the Temple Mount, from all the things that remind you I'm your God and I have a covenant with you that won't last forever. I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to make you prosper. They could just quote that verse and it was about them directly. And all the same, they don't just grab it and run. They stop and preemptively they pray. They fasted and prayed for God to show them the right way to go. That is the second thing here. The E in the pray with pep. Man, I love how cheesy that is. <laughs> exceptional prayer. This is exceptional prayer because these are exceptional times and this is an exceptional thing they're going to try to carry out. This isn't just some everyday journey. This isn't an average Wednesday for these people. These aren't the ordinary morning prayers. This is a hazardous thing they're about to undertake. And so there needs to be exceptional prayer. The great danger was not just the treacherous terrain, but they could have died out there without any outside force acting on them if they hadn't prepared well enough, if they, if they got you know, off course at some point, if they, if they got buried by a rock slide. But there's more to fear than that. The constant threat of attack. Think about that long catalog of precious metals, treasures, and riches that they have with them during this journey that Dave read for us. This is 20 to 30 tons of gold and silver. If you were transporting that even today through a safe city with a police force and law and order, you'd still have armored cars and armed guards and a lot of planning involved. They don't have all this stuff. We'll get to why in a minute, but they're just kind of walking blind. This is a heist movie waiting to happen. You know those long, drawn-out planning sequences where, like, the crooks get together and they have a, a screen and it shows all the different countermeasures they have to overcome to get into the safe? There's motion sensors and heat sensors and, you know, if, you, if a, piece of, a little drop of sweat lands on the floor, then all of a sudden dogs and guards and guns and all this stuff and the doors slam shut, but we have the way around it. And that's what makes it exciting. Imagine this meeting. 
There's 20 to 30 tons of gold and silver and nothing to overcome. Not much of anything at all. No real guards. I mean, a small volunteer squad. There's, there's three dozen Levites. There's, there's a couple hundred temple servants. And undoubtedly, they'd have swords and, and they'd put up a fight. But they're no match for desert raiders, people whose very livelihood is derived from finding caravans, descending on them, and taking all that they had. And yet, we read in verse 31, after the fact, the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. That tells us there were people who wanted to ambush them along the way, but God kept them safe. In the 5th century BC, the risk of attack on a journey like this, four months out traveling through open land, the, the odds of being attacked were just shy of certain. There's no highway patrol, no border patrol. It's open wilderness. They're averaging, you know, how many miles per day? Nine miles per day. I mean, you can take your time if you're planning this attack. They're crawling along. And then think about who they're praying for. Safe travel for us, for our children, for our families, and for these goods that we're transporting. It's one thing to trust God with your own life. It's another to trust God with people you're responsible for. And yet there's the, the prayer laid out beforehand before the face of the Lord. And not only did they pray, it was an exceptional prayer. They fasted because of the exceptional danger. This is not something we do a lot, although we are coming up on Lent. Let that do two things. One of them give you some hope. Spring is on the way. Lent starts next month. It's 40 days long, and when it gets done, spring's pretty much here. Don't hold me to that, but, you know, that's the idea. But also remember that that's a time of fasting and self-reflection and, and humbling yourself before the Lord. It's a time of self-denial and re-emphasizing the presence of Christ in our lives. So they, they fasted, and fasting is not some superstitious practice. It's not a magic spell. It's an ordained means by which God says, you can approach me this way. Come to me. Come to me with prayer and fasting. I did, not, I did not write these words, but I think they are brilliant, and you may want to write them in the margin of your Bible. Fasting facilitates prayer. It does not manipulate God. Fasting facilitates prayer. It does not manipulate God. But when times are tough, we see God's people calling out, we need to fast. In fact, it was just Artaxerxes' dad, Xerxes, who was king, when Esther said to all the Jews in all of Persia, and as far as the word would go, listen, everybody, fast. We are in danger. There is going to be a date on which it is legal to slaughter us, and it is illegal for us to defend ourselves. So fast, fast and pray. But it's not just some Old Testament thing relegated to the, the Old Covenant, some bygone world. Jesus talks about fasting, how to do it. When Jesus tells us how to fast, that we shouldn't do it like the Pharisees and make a big deal out of it because that's the reward. He says, no, when you fast, put a little, you know, dapper Dan in your hair, put on your clothes, put a smile on your face and go about your day. And, and God will see what is done in secret and he will reward you. Well, telling us how to fast assumes that we will be fasting. Why else would he be telling us how to do it? Now, why to do it is another question entirely. Fasting, it's a multifaceted thing in the scriptures. One reason for fasting is that it highlights for us that God is the source of our life. 
That, that if I have to be cut off from food to sustain me or from God to sustain me, I'm better being cut off from the food because he is the source of all life. Remember when, when Jesus had just spoken with the woman on the well, the woman on the well, and she was just on the, no, the woman at the well, and, and the disciples came back into town, they had food, they're like, here, eat something. And Jesus said, I have food you know nothing about. He, he was speaking about this truth. God sustains me. There are many times in the Old Testament that there are nods to this. Come to me, all who are hungry, buy bread without cost, right? The idea is that fasting makes us vulnerable, reminds us of our frailty. Secondly, fasting removes every single distraction there might be. Now you think, hold on a minute, being hungry is a distraction, and that's true. If you, if you know me, you know that when I'm hungry, every third word out of my mouth is, I'm hungry, oh, I'm so hungry, I, I'm, I'm hungry. And yet, I can, you might look at me and say, you've never fasted, I have, actually. And I can tell you from experience, that fades. When you fast, at first, oh, I'm hungry. And you know what? Before long, you go, huh, I don't miss it. I feel like, I feel fine. In fact, I feel more centered. I feel like I am able to focus on God all the more. I can push through that hunger until I'm reminded I don't live by bread alone, which is what Jesus said when he was tempted after his 40-day fast. I, I do better to be cut off from my physical sustenance than being cut off from my creator. And this is a way of physically affirming that. I don't know if you're aware of Emperor Penguin's fasting, but this was a, I, I, this is just silly. I'm gonna say it anyway. Four months, these folks were traveling from Persia to Jerusalem. And four months is how long Emperor Penguins fast whenever they have uh, eggs to incubate. 100 to 115 days. Listen. If penguins can understand the value of fasting, don't be less wise than a penguin. So fasting is also here to humble us, to humble us completely. And that's what is said here. I proclaim to fast at the river Rahava that we might humble ourselves before our God. We're, we're going to humble ourselves. Think about what, what this means. You, you, you think about a king and what a king's life is like, or a really famous Celebrity who's rich and lives in a mansion, their life is whatever they want, food, uh, gourmet food, delicacy, stuff flown in from all around the world. Think about all the stuff that we read that's imported into Solomon's uh, kingdom. When you read about Solomon in, in First and Second Kings, well, why is that? Because they are the center of the universe. When we fast, it's the opposite entirely. It's saying, I am humble, I am lowly. God is the center of the universe. And so we did this to humble ourselves before our God. And they fast before they take one step toward Jerusalem. If you're in a season of, of particular trial or difficulty, or you are praying fervently for something to happen and you have not yet fasted, this may be something to consider. It's odd to me that we talk so little about it, or that, no, it's not odd that we talk so little about it. Jesus said, keep it down low, but that I hear people teach so little about it myself included. It does come up often in scripture. Jesus said there are even types of demons when his disciples went out two by two. There are types of demons. He says this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Like there are things that happen in the spiritual world when we begin to fast and pray. So it is preemptive prayer. It is exceptional prayer in that there is all this fasting involved and it is persevering prayer. There's a complication here. 
Because there's all this danger, and we've just laid out all the levels of danger along the way, a four-month journey, crawling along through the wilderness, sitting ducks with all of this treasure. And yet we read in verse 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, quote, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. You, you have this blank check from the king, whatever you need. He could have said, I need about, I don't know, a thousand soldiers. I want them on horses. I want them well armed. I want them to be real tough, nasty guys. And Artaxerxes would have given it to them. But he said, I was ashamed to ask for that. It would not have been sinful in itself for him to ask for guards. I point you simply to Nehemiah, the next book. We're going to study that next. But when you get there, he takes a group of people back to build the wall. And he's like, I'm going to need some soldiers. And Artaxerxes is like, of course, yeah, here's some soldiers. And there's no problem with it whatsoever. Bringing a contingent of soldiers to protect them, being wise about how we, we manage our security. I heard about people, you know, when there are all these concerns about safety in churches and people will take measures to try and mitigate if someone would want to come in and harm people in the church and others say, well, that's a lack of faith. No, a presence of wisdom is not always a lack of faith. But Ezra has something else on his mind here. Remember, he's a man of the word. And a few weeks ago, we saw that that manifests itself in his character in life in three ways. He studies the word. He does the word, he lives it out, and he teaches the word. And we find out here that he has been, to some degree, teaching the word to the king, telling him about how mighty God is and how he protects his own people and how he, his wrath is great on the enemy. He has been living out the word before the king. And at this point, he says, I am, I'm not willing to mess that up by, by undercutting it and saying, yes, I've been boasting about my Lord and how great he is and how he protects his own but I need you to do that work. Now, to some degree, God has always used pagan kings to get the job done. It's because he's sovereign. But in this case, Ezra decided that he did not want to do that. God's great name is Ezra's primary concern here. It's easy to look at it after the fact and say that was kind of a silly move to turn down armed security. But also remember, part of what Judah had done to get themselves exiled in the first place was looking for security from armies and horses and chariots of foreign lands. Remember, you're, you're relying on Egypt, that broken reed of a staff that will puncture your hand. You're relying on Assyria, on Aram, on whoever. And God said, I want you to rely on me. So in the midst of this revival that's happening in Israel, this is a perfectly fitting thing for him to do. And I think what we see, and, and read carefully with me, is a little hint of doubt here, possibly of regret. That word ashamed is an unusual one. It's from the same root bosh of shame, and, and shame's not usually a positive thing in the scriptures. Shame can be used by the Spirit to convict someone of sin, but that's not what's going on here. He's saying, I boasted and boasted boldly about the Lord, and then I was ashamed to ask for what I really wanted. You get the impression he wants to kind of reel it back a little bit. He wants to walk back all these statements he made, but he can't. Is there a little doubt here? Probably, yeah. Holy people doubt. Absolutely. Even Sean doubts sometimes. Look at the Old Testament. Moses 
riddled with doubt, especially at the beginning. Sarah, laughing at the promises of God. Gideon, whoa, hold on, this can't be the case. I need proof and more proof and more proof. I'll say it again because it's a clever thing that I thought of. Shakespeare was right when he said our doubts are traitors. And what's a good way to approach traitors? You turn them in, you give them a fair trial, and then you put them to death for treason. Do the same thing with your doubts. Ezra does this. He takes the doubts that he has, he frog marches them right into the throne room of God, puts them on trial, and puts them to death. We see Ezra worried a bit, ashamed, doubting perhaps, and going deep into prayer, not letting any of this drive a wedge between him and his God. Rather, it drives him into the presence of God because God is the only one who can deal with his doubt or his shame or his worry. And then once he's done all this, when he's prayed preemptively, exceptionally, and he has prayed in this way as well, persevering prayer that, that comes in the face of doubt and, and throws these things at the foot of uh, the, the, the throne of God, he then acts in keeping with his prayers. This is important as well. Praying that God will save your neighbor without evangelizing your neighbor is foolish. Praying that God will give you long life and good health while you wolf down your 18th consecutive Big Mac is foolish. Praying that God will end the drought without carrying an umbrella with you to church. It shows a, a little disconnect there. Well, you don't find that disconnect with Ezra. He overcomes that doubt. He overcomes that I was ashamed. He overcomes any worry he might have in the act of prayer. Peppy prayer. After fasting and praying, seeking the Lord, he acts. He appoints 12 of these priests from the, from the house of Hashabiah and Jab, I don't even remember the other name, Jab, Jabaniah, something like that. And, and, and he then takes 10 of their kinsmen and says, you help them as well. We are going to protect this stuff and trust that God will protect us. All of the riches are entrusted to priests and they are weighed and counted out as they're about to leave. And then four months later when they arrive, they are weighed again and counted out in the temple so that everything is accounted for. So he is acting in a way that trusts that God will answer his prayers. And, and we see here the ultimate example of you had one job. What is the one job of each of these priests and their kinsmen? Well, it's for all these four months of travel to keep whatever amount of gold or silver they were entrusted with, keep it safe, keep it secure, keep it, so that they can hand it over on the other side. In many ways, this could even be seen as a metaphor for the Christian life. Only instead of just keep it, we're given talents of gold, uh, resources, time, and God says, here, uh, go ahead and sow this seed. Go ahead and invest this. Multiply it. Trust me to protect you even in the course of doing that. And in Jesus' parable, of course, there's the guy who says, I just buried it because I heard that you were a hard master. And he has proven not to really be a worthy disciple. But their job is to protect it from anything. Any, anyone inside the group who might try and pilfer a little, any spiritual and temptation from inside their own hearts, that they might try to skim a little from the top, any real danger of a mighty enemy attacking from without, to keep it safe. This is application of their own prayers. God will protect us and give us the strength to do what we need to do. And we're told here in verse 23, God listened. And he listened to our entreaty. Christ will in the end make all things new. We know that. 
When we pray, we know there will be an answer to our prayers ultimately. And we know he will lead us home just as he led these people home. He will bring us safely to the celestial city. He will bring us over the river Jordan, however we want to frame it. We know that God is faithful in the end. And when we pray, we can trust him. And they arrived here. Hold on, let me go. I, I just turned away from the text. They arrived here in verse 33. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites. They, they got there safely. They weighed it back out. Everything was accounted for. It all worked in the end. Notice here the bookend of the three days of rest. At the beginning, they rest three days at the river. At the end, when they arrive, they rest three days. These probably are foreshadowing the three days Christ would spend in the tomb. And on the fourth day, they get to work. On the fourth day, they praise God and thank him for delivering them into the promised land, bringing them back to Jerusalem. They prayed at the beginning preemptively, and they praised at the end extensively. And that's something we miss as well much of the time. We have our prayer list and things go off of it and things go on it and things go off of it. And sometimes we look at it and go, well, that thing's been on it a really long time. And, we, and we're always moving things around and adding it. But are we only praying for those things that are an immediate need? Or are we preemptively praying for things that have not come up yet and continually thanking God for what he's already done for us in the past? This is vital for a Christian to, to be in close communion with God. Not simply saying, oh, thanks, Lord, and then moving on to the next thing. All right, so the next thing I need is, but taking time. This was a four-month journey, thousands of miles. Remember that the story of Jesus healing the ten lepers in Luke 17. And they were all so excited, they jumped for joy, and they all ran home, and one of them was halfway home and went, what am I doing? Turned around and went back to Jesus, fell at his feet and said, thank you, thank you so much for healing me, for making me clean. And he said, I thought I healed 10 lepers and only one came back. Just for us to quickly kind of perfunctorily thank God and then move on to our own selfish next desire is kind of to identify with those nine who did not spend the time in prayer of thanks. In, in returning thanks, in showing gratitude. You know, we often, when we're in the midst of a difficulty, we'll make deals with God, right? Lord, listen, if you will just get me out of this jam that I probably caused, I will go to church every week. I'm not going to tell you not to make that deal, but I will, I will stop, you know, using that word that I know I shouldn't use, or I will stop thinking those angry thoughts that I shouldn't, whatever, if, if you get me out of this, I'll never do that again, or I'll always do this, and yet, that's silly heathen thinking. Rather, wait until God has answered your prayer and say, you know what, Lord? I am going to show how much I, I, I appreciate you, how grateful I am by following you more closely. Those words, are, I shouldn't be saying, I'm not going to say them. Those thoughts I shouldn't be having, I'm not going to. Why? I'm going to be reminded that you are faithful and that you've just poured out your grace on me yet again. And I'm going to be motivated to follow you closer and closer. In verse 35, we read the, the details of this praise. It's not perfunctory. It is in deep praise. It is extended praise. They offer up burnt offerings. And there's all the numbers of the bullocks and oxen and all these things. I'm not going to read all that to you, but it's a lot. And the burnt offering, recognize there are different kinds of offerings. In most of the cases, you bring your animal 
it is sacrificed, and you get to eat it, and then a portion of it goes to the priest. Even the sin offering, part of it is burned up, but part of it is eaten. This is the only offering where the whole thing is gone. It all goes up to God. In fact, the Hebrew word olah means the going up or the ascent. The whole thing just goes up to heaven in the form of, of this smoke and, and this, this smell, which probably to those making the sacrifice was not very great, but to God, we're told, it is sweet in his nostrils. They give him praise. They give him everything. They put it all on the altar and say, we prayed before we left. We prayed before we took one step. We trusted you every step of the way. We were entrusted with these things and we said, Lord, make me faithful with them. And now that you've come through, we will live our lives entirely for you. Here's a picture of that. The whole animal burned on the altar going up into your presence. And if you were to walk by on that day, and see them making that great joyous offering and everybody happy and laughing and say to them, is there any hope? They could, they could look you right in the eye and say, our only hope is in the Lord. And that is good news. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of a four-month journey in which we get no details of the journey itself, but we get a lot about what happened right before they left and right after they arrived. And Lord, we see in both of those a way that we can approach you, praying before, before the fact and after, thanking you for your faithfulness, praying for your guiding and protecting hand, fasting and, and seeking your face, and Lord, persevering even through doubt or shame or difficulty or worry. Lord, we pray that these things would mark our prayer lives, our devotional lives, that, Lord, you would cause us not to just forget your goodness and move on to the next thing, but to take the time to, to praise you, to thank you, to once again be the living sacrifice where we go on the altar and all of it is for you. We pray, Lord, that we would do this not as some deal where we can manipulate you into doing what we want, but rather just as an expression of our love, our devotion, our great thanks, our, our gratitude that will never end because your grace knows no end. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.